Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together to learn more about your word. We pray, Lord, as we look at Proverbs, you'd help us with wisdom that we may live according to your tenets and your commands, that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray for Bob in the sermon that's coming. We pray that we would understand 1 Corinthians 2, Lord, very well, that we would be kept from error. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I just want to do a little reminder of where we left off last time in our Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 8. I want you to remember that we had left off with wisdom leading to peace. We actually covered this, and we talked about how wisdom from God is promised here to give not only peace but length of days. And if you remember, when we talked about the commandments here in the teaching, we talked a little bit about what peace was, that it was well-being in its most comprehensive sense, And we also talked about how the length of days, I went into the next slide, it certainly has to do with length of days in the land. That was always primary, but we also did look at evidence in the scriptures. I'm just kind of going through these because we'd already covered them. We looked at evidence in the Old Testament where length of days certainly has to do with living long lives in the land, but it does start to blend into everlasting life in certain passages. Or maybe the better way of saying it is, There are certain passages that certainly do teach everlasting life, while other passages are more concerned about living lives here and now so that you will live long lives in the land. One of the commandments I thought of was from Exodus 20, verse 12. If you remember, it says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And by the way, that's a command that's reiterated in Ephesians 6, it's reappropriated for the new covenant that, yes, the sons and daughters ought to honor their father and mother. Okay, so that's where we had left off last time. Now, this time I want to talk about the need for being people who are of grace and truth. And we're going to see that here in verses 3 through 4, where the writer of Proverbs here says, Do not let kindness and truth leave you, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Now, the first term I want to talk about there, notice kindness. Oftentimes you will see this rendered in your New American Standard Bible as loving kindness. Um, I believe here it's just kindness, obviously. I think this is the NASB. But oftentimes your NASB will render this term chesed. It'll render it as loving kindness. But the basic idea behind it is grace and mercy. That's the idea. I know some, some people will call it covenant love. You'll see some translations have that. But the basic root of it is the idea of giving unmerited favor in the sense of grace or in the sense of mercy, not giving someone what they do deserve. And to me, one of my favorite kind of passages that I think illustrates this idea of chesed is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And that's the story of Mephibosheth. I know I've told this story before, but I think it really illustrates this idea of chesed. So the idea of kindness is the idea of God giving unmerited favor, which is grace, and mercy to others. And the idea is that if you and I are followers of him, we are to do the same. We are to be those who are also gracious to others. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and particularly we'll look at verse 3 
for the sake of time. But let me explain the story of Mephibosheth. This will take a little bit of time. But as I begin telling the story, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 9.3. Remember that King David, before he was king, he had made a covenant with Jonathan. And the covenant was that if either one of them had died, the one that was still alive would look after the family of the other. That was part of the covenant that they had made. Well, if you recall, Saul and Jonathan died on Mount Gilboa. In fact, how many in here were in Israel on the latest trip? Anyone from our congregation here? Oh, I thought a lot of people went from our congregation. Well, maybe not. Um, if any of you have ever been to Israel, many of you have probably seen the actual place where Jonathan and Saul, they were put on this Mount Gilboa where they had died. It's called Beth Shean. Anyway, that's where they had died. And remember, David ascends to the throne. And in 2 Samuel 9, he wants to show chaset. He wants to show this grace to someone from Jonathan's family. Well, remember in the day, this is in the ancient Near East, not just in Israel, but all of the nations surrounding Israel, that if you were an ascendant king, you would more than likely put to death any contender to the throne. Why? Because they might try to usurp your rule and they might try to assassinate you. So often it was the case that a king would certainly get rid of the other family members of a rival king. So Mephibosheth, by nature of being born to Jonathan, naturally would be at risk of being put to death by David. Are you with me? But David shows chesed. He shows unmerited favor and he shows mercy. And so he asked one of his servants, I'm paraphrasing all of this from memory, but he says, who can I show chesed to from Jonathan's household? And they said, well, there is one man named Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth, there's a big debate as to what his name means. To me, the best rendering, Bosheth, anytime you see that, it's something with shame. Um, we have a good Hebrew scholar here that could probably help us. We're talking about the name Mephibosheth. Mary Bale. Right, right. We got to get, get a microphone to you, Adam. Um, somebody can grab a microphone. We have a resident scholar here who can talk about Bosheth and Mephibosheth. And so we're just going to get a microphone over to him. And give us any insights you may have on his name, Adam, and I'll kind of tell you where I've landed on it. Well, I, I would have to uh, look always to refresh my memory. Yeah, no, know, that's I fine. I want to remember him properly. I know that some of those names that have a boshet on the end, uh, which means shame. Shame, exactly. Some of them, like his brother Ish Boshet, uh, there, there are other readings within Scripture. Uh, yes. Just different things were copied down in the manuscripts. Yeah. And so you also find Ish Baal. Uh, and Baal means like Lord, uh, Master. Sometimes right. it's translated husband, but Lord, Master, yeah. uh, which was a name that was used for God, but it became associated with uh, a pagan, uh, pagan deities. Uh, and so th there's some discussion just about the different like textual uh, variants. So Ish Baal, Ish Boshet. Right. Uh, and so some, some think that uh, possibly... Uh, there are alternate uh, readings uh, that maybe the scribe wrote uh, shame instead of uh, Baal exactly. for the pagan deity. 
Yeah, the term But maybe shame, the different authors, too, kind of playing off that. Well said. Thank you, Adam. Um, I was thinking of the term... And so there might be... I, I'd have to look again if there's Mephi Ball and Mephi Bullshit. Oh, I know, Adam. Let's, let's go it this way. Uh, talk about the false god Molech. Um, I'm sorry. We'll just go back to him. Okay. There was a false god named Melech. Melech in Hebrew is king, but the Hebrews would ballpoint it with this O, Molech. So he wasn't a true god. He was a shameful one because he asked you to murder your own children. He, he was the one who told the Israelites to sacrifice their firstborn in order to garner favor. And so the reason, and this is what Adam's pointing out, is that this Bosheth at the end of Mephibosheth's name has to do with shame. And so the point is, when you look at Mephibosheth's life, he was dropped as a very young boy, and he was crippled. He could do nothing for himself his name has shame in it. <laughs> and he comes from a town named Lodavar, which is um, no pasture, uh, no place. Um, some scholars have said if you're to put it in our vernacular, the way they would have thought about it, it was nowhere. It was a no place. It's an, so here you have a shameful one, a nobody from nowhere is kind of the picture of Mephibosheth. He's crippled. He's got nothing going for him. And he should be put to death by the king. The king should wipe him out. But David, because he's going to show chesed, he saves Mephibosheth. So one day Mephibosheth is there in his home, and the king's men come to get him. And he thinks for certain it's curtains. He's going to be put to death. But instead, the king's men bring him to the foot of the king and listen to what David says. Um, I'm sorry, this is 2 Samuel 9.3. This is where David says, the king said, Is there anyone of the house of Saul to whom that I may show the kindness of God? Does everyone see the term kindness there? That's the term chaset. That's what God shows. God is a God of grace. He gives unmerited favor. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who was crippled in both feet. So long story short, when Jonathan, his grandson, this is Mephibosheth, is brought to King David... He should be put to death. And do you remember what David says to him? He says, you're going to eat at the king's table forevermore. And the response by Mephibosheth, if you keep reading the passages, he says, who am I but a dead dog that I should eat at the king's table? And I think that's such a good, good parable, as it were, for how God saves us. You and I were a bunch of shameful ones, a bunch of spiritual cripples, had nothing going for us. The king should put us to death, and yet we were sovereignly brought to the king, and we'll eat at the king's table forevermore. Now, the reason I'm raising this issue is this is the kind of grace that you and I should extend to others. Why? Because it was first given to us. The grace and mercy that God gave to us is to be reflected in our lives. Jesus himself said, if you've been forgiven, we have. We've been forgiven much. We have to be those who forgive much. And so that's why grace should be the part and parcel to our lives. I'm sorry, Brian, you had a comment I saw you were working on the microphone. I was going to say, isn't it a picture of God's yeah. His judgment on us? Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful picture, and I don't want to just read it as an allegory. It's, it's a real story, but I think it does illustrate very well. If we're going to say, hey, what does it look like for us to be saved? It's a lot like what happens to Mephibosheth with the king. Absolutely. Yeah. So with that, now notice the other part of this is truth. Kindness and truth. He says, do not let kindness and truth leave you. In fact, he says, bind them around your neck. 
write them on the tablet of your heart. This is probably synonymous. The idea is that they will always be part of you, your character, and how you live. Now, the term truth there, it really does have to do with speaking that which is forthright, that which corresponds to reality, but you and I as believers don't speak with a forked tongue. Let me tell you kind of a change that I saw happen in evangelicalism, one that I was not really aware of when I was an airline pilot. As an airline pilot in the 90s and the early 2000s, I was convinced that you could know things because I would navigate by instruments and I would break out at a 200-foot ceiling and a half-mile visibility and the runway would be there, we'd land, and I'd think, voila, we know things, therefore we can land and survive. But I go to seminary and all that's been jettisoned. All of a sudden they claim that you can't know things with precision and with certainty. Well, one of the big debates happened over the doctrine of truth or how do you know what you know. And so we as evangelicals, we've believed in something called the correspondence theory of truth. That something is true if it corresponds to reality. If I say that there's a pack of gum in my pocket and I pull out and voila, there's a packet of gum in my pocket pocket, that statement was true. But that's been rejected by the postmodern age, which believes in a socially constructed reality or truth. That is, something is true if we all agree on it. So the way that would look is, let's say I don't really have gum in my pocket, so it's it's empty now, but you all and, and I, we all agree that there is gum in my pocket, therefore it's true for us. That's the socially constructed idea of truth, okay? And the idea, the reason why they hold to that is they don't believe anyone can have access to truth. It's not that truth doesn't exist in their mind. Keep that in mind. We often say as Christians that the postmodern age says that there is no truth. No, they believe that there's truth out there, but because of the imprecise nature of our sense perceptions, because of our biases inherent to us, they believe you can never access the truth. And so they're content with this socially constructed reality. That is not how the Bible affirms truth. Truth is associated with that which corresponds to reality. When Paul says, and Peter, the apostle, and all of the apostles say, we didn't follow cleverly crafted schemes, or as Paul says, we give you cold, sober truth. The implication is that when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that literally happened. When Jesus walked on water, those things happened. When he healed the sick and raised the dead, those things correspond to reality. They really happen. And so you and I are to be people of truth, that we're not those who fabricate and say things that are not true. So that's the kind of people we are, in fact, to be. Now, I want you to see how this kindness and truth, grace again and truth, maybe another way of rendering it, is inherent to who God is. Yes, Adam in the back. I thought I'd just ask what, what is the relation to uh, truth and God? And maybe I, I'd offer uh, kind of a, a spin on the correspondence theory of truth that yeah. truth corresponds to God his created order and what he's revealed about it through his word. Amen. Um, Just to differentiate, I mean, that's something that maybe someone could accept uh, just from a secular-like perspective. Sure. Uh, But I think truth is grounded uh, 
in, uh, I mean, really in the per person and work of God in, in Jesus Christ and uh, his word. And the created order is something, God's eternal. He's always been there. Uh, truth uh, truth uh, finds its, um, I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's essence, I mean, uh, in, yes. uh, in the one who is true. Amen. Well, and, said. I don't mean essence in a technical sense there, but uh, yeah, no, but very God, good. I God love is that. True. You're exactly right, Adam. So yes, it's inherent to who He is. He's the creator of all things. He's the grounding of truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, so and absolutely. Then, and then the creation, the created order, because uh, He has made it to be so, and what He reveals about it through His Word. Uh, I mean, that's that's true. Absolutely. In fact, He. That's a good segue word to is this. True. Very good, Adam. Thank you. This is a perfect segue. Everyone turn your Bibles to Exodus 34, 6. I'm going to show you that inherent to God's very character and his being is the idea of chaset and a math, that is grace and truth. So Exodus 34, 6. This is, remember, how God revealed himself to Moses. Chapter 34 of Exodus, verse 6. I hope everyone's turned there. Notice it says, then the Lord, now remember all caps, that's Yahweh's covenant name, Yahweh. It says, then Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So here on Mount Sinai, God reveals himself as the God of Chaset, the same term that you see here and the God of truth. So notice then, you and I, if we belong to him by faith in Christ, we are to reflect those things in our lives as well. Now, let me show you a passage where this same idea of the God of Israel, the true God, the only God, being a God of grace and truth, how that's connected to Jesus, so that you can see that Jesus is, in fact, the same God. Turn your Bibles to John 1.14. John 1.14, please turn your Bibles there. And we will see here in John 1.14 that Jesus is the same as Yahweh who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34.6 as the God of grace and truth. John 1.14, notice John writes, he says, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now remember that term, only begotten? I've talked about this before, how that means not that he came into being at a certain point, but that he's the one and only, the monogenes. He's the one and only, he's the unique son. Now notice that he's full of grace and truth. That's identical to what's revealed about Yahweh and Exodus 34, 6. So isn't it exciting that here Jesus is revealing himself to be the same God that revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, full of grace and full of truth. Now, here's something I want you to think about. If God is full of grace and truth, he extends grace to others, you and I are to do the same thing. And that's part and parcel to our calling as Christians to be holy as God is holy. In fact, turn your Bibles to one more passage, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. And I'm going to show you this command to be holy as God is holy would incorporate this idea that you and I 
have grace and truth in our life as well. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. Now, by the way, as you're turning to 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, this was talked about in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19, where God called his people to be holy as he was. But we see it again under the new covenant. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. Hope everyone's turned there. Notice it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy for I am holy. Now, this idea of being holy is this idea of being set apart, being different from the world. So certainly because God is gracious and God is the God of truth, he is different from the world. And you and I are to be the same. So think about it. When the world takes their enemies and grinds them into a fine powder and punches them out or attacks them, you and I instead are called to be gracious. You and I are to be merciful. And in fact, we're going to see that in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 where we're called to be those who are merciful to one another and to our neighbor. And so, yes, being gracious and being people of truth means that we are set apart. We belong to our God rather than the world that is dying and decaying and fleeting away. That's the idea. And so I want you to see then that connected to this idea of wisdom in the Old Testament is moral character. So wisdom in the Old Testament isn't merely knowledge. Now, again, it's not apart from knowledge, but it's knowledge rightly applied ethically. In other words, you and I have to have moral character if we are to have true wisdom. And I'm going to show you another story in the Old Testament that illustrates this very well. How many have ever read in the Old Testament the story of Nabal and Abigail? How many in here have ever done that? And by the way, when I'm using story, I'm not saying that it didn't happen. This is real. I'm just using it. It's the narrative form. That's what it's written in. So let's talk about Nabal and Abigail. And literally, I have kind of a contrast between the two. And I'm going to show you that graciousness and moral character is inherent to wisdom. And so if a person is nasty, harsh, never shows grace, and never shows truth in their life, as it were, then they are a person who doesn't have wisdom. And you see that illustrated very well with Nabal and Abigail. Isn't it interesting that Nabal's name means fool? And that's how I thought of it. I thought of about a character in the Old Testament whose very name means fool. And I thought, well, how does he act? Well, he acts opposite of those who show cassette. He doesn't show grace and mercy to David. In fact, he's a very stingy and nasty man. Do you know what Abigail's name means? It means my father's joy. She shows cassette. She shows grace. And therefore, you know what? The Bible depicts her as one who has wisdom. So when you and I are looking at Proverbs 3, I think, ironically, the narrative of Nabal and Abigail really give us a picture of why you and I are to be those who are gracious and those dedicated to truth because we're followers of God. We want to be like Abigail 
not Nabal. Now, I'm going to put up this first Samuel 25, 3. Now, remember, this setting is in Carmel. It says in 1 Samuel 25, 3, it says, Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. But notice the contrast. But the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Now, why is it significant? I'll start at the end of this passage. Why is it significant that you have Nabal here being a Calebite? Well, the Calebites, according to 1 Chronicles, they were the founders of Bethlehem. Now, why is that important? Because that means that Nabal is a kinsman of David. And as such, there is some responsibility if David needs help, that Nabal would be there for him as a kinsman. And vice versa. But if you remember the narrative, if you read the story in 1 Samuel 25, David ends up protecting with his hundreds of men the flock of Nabal. In fact, even Nabal's own men will testify to the fact, and they do later in the story, that David's men had protected them and they had stolen nothing. So the irony is that the king of Israel, he will be king one day when Saul perishes, he's protecting the flock of Nabal, his kinsmen, But when he simply asks for sustenance, he ends up being turned down. So that's what you're going to see. Now, isn't it interesting? Nabal had his sheep and his men protected by David, and yet he's going to be stingy with his reward. Turn your Bibles, if you will. Someone could read this. 1 Samuel 25, 16. I put that in my notes. Um, um, In fact, Brian, if you have that there with your microphone, that'd be great. 1 Samuel 25, 16. They were a wall to us both. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, before you read that, this is Nabal's men, and they're saying what David was to them. Yeah. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending to sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Wow. Yeah, so this is, these are the words from Nabal's own men, and they're acknowledging in that passage that David and his men had been a wall of protection to them. So think about that. David is a wall of protection to Nabal. He's a kinsman, and yet in his time of need, during a feast day, you have Nabal ends up turning him down. Now, notice the contrast. Abigail, again, her name means my father's joy, She's depicted as what? She's depicted as intelligent. There's two words that are used here in the Hebrew. Tov, sekel, means good insight or good understanding. In fact, that same description is used of King David in 1 Samuel 18.30. So she, this is Abigail, again her name means my father's joy, has good understanding or insight or you might say wisdom, just like David did according to 1 Samuel 18.30. That's her character. So there's a contrast between her character and the man who was harsh. Does everyone see his harshness here? Uh, By the way, there's a good rendering of the NIV. The NIV says he was surly and mean. (laughs) That's the kind of guy he was. It's the opposite of cassette. He doesn't show cassette. He's surly and mean. So he certainly isn't one... Who shows? Yeah, yeah, Bob said a hockey player. That's right. Surly. 
enforcer. The enforcer on the hockey team, right. That's, that's the way Nabel was, right. He, um, yes, I'm sorry, Brian. Go ahead. Just a little side note. I want to ask you something. It's, it's been on my mind, but this is a good spot to bring it up. Yeah. I find it interesting that throughout the Bible, names have meanings, and it always fits the person to a T. So is that God's providence that these people throughout the Bible, their names are always who they are? And, And also, could you apply that in any way, any any degree uh, to people's names uh, today? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I think there is a degree of providence in that in the scriptures. But remember also, in the scriptures and in the time period even, a name reflected the character in the person. So, for example... Um, how many in here, <laughs> I hate to bring this movie up, I've seen only the TV version, so I'm not vouching for it, but I, I kind of like funny movies like Airplane, Airplane 2, I like the slapstick comedy or humor. Well, there's one movie called Top Secret, it's with Val Kilmer, and he's asking this one woman, how did you get named, and she talks about her name, and his name was Nick in the movie, and he's, the, the question is, well, how did you get your name? He said, I don't know, my father was shaving. Nick, you know, you got Nick, you know. <laughs> And my point is, I think sometimes that in American, in our culture, the names that we attach to our children, they probably don't have a... I'm not saying they don't have a lot of thought. Some people put a lot of thought into them. But they're not connected to the character so much as they are in the ancient Near East. Are you with me? So Jesus' name, Yeshua, or I'm sorry, uh, it's the same as Joshua's name, in the Old Testament means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. It's apropos for who he is and what he does. Nabal's name, in some sense, is apropos for who he is and what he does. And same, the same as Abigail. We just don't see that same connection with names t- today uh, in our culture. A lot of times people name their children so they don't get kicked in kindergarten. Right? You don't want a, you know, Aloysius Christian Shriner III going into kindergarten. Uh, yes, Adam. But, but um, yeah, I think you're right. They're, they're providentially, we oftentimes see that the name means something very significant. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a really good insight that does often reflect the the character, uh, but also uh, many of those uh, who had wonderful names about the character of God uh, did not live up to those names uh, throughout the history of Israel. And so they would bear Yahweh's name, but they bear it in vain. I mean, literally, uh, just by... Uh, by their rebellion, uh, by uh, drifting off into idolatry, uh, to worshiping idols. And a lot of uh, kings and rulers or those who had ambitions to become kings or rulers, uh, they would almost give uh, their children names that uh, were more fitting with propaganda uh, that would speak about, like, Avimelech, uh, my, my father king, you know, and things like that. And sometimes uh, they didn't necessarily have good character. And so, like, that's, that's often true. Uh, that's uh, very often true. But yeah. uh, sometimes it's more the, the ideal of, of the parents, uh, whether they're true worshipers of Yahweh uh, or uh, they profess to worship this one of many gods. Yeah, right. So among well the, said, among Adam. So sometimes it's in an ironic way, isn't it? Yeah. They don't live yeah. up to the very name. Absolutely. That's right. Very well said. Um, yes. Dormish. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know what that name means, so yeah. <laughs> We're not going to go there, yeah. <laughs> um, we'll leave that one alone, yeah. 1 Samuel 25, 5 through 11. If anyone, if everyone would turn, oh, I'm sorry. Laverne, oh, I didn't see you back there. Yeah, I just wanted to Good to, to see make... you back, by the way, you and Jeff. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, I just wanted to make a comment about Abigail because consistent with her name is what she did yes. after her fool husband refused to help David and his men. Yeah. They were going to annihilate him. And because of her graciousness, going to him and, t- and pretending that it was... Well, at, she actually said, forgive me for yes. my foolishness. So she took on that of her husband and, um, of course, made everything right by bringing food and, and cakes and everything else. So Well said, Laverne. In fact, we're going to read that very thing. You're exactly right. And, and so she does live up to her name, right? And she shows cassette. She shows, shows a graciousness that Nabal, her husband, doesn't. And so everyone, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Samuel 25, 5 through 11. I'm going to read this narrative for you. And one of the things I want you to see in it is that David's men, they're going to go to Nabal and they carry his authority. Um, I've talked about in the past this concept of the Shaluak of the Old Testament, the one who comes in the name of someone else who bears their authority. This, in some sense, is the way it works with the apostles. The apostles are sent out in Christ's name. And if you reject them, you're rejecting Christ himself. Well, here, the mistreatment of David's men is a mistreatment of him, okay? So, notice here in 1 Samuel 25, 5 through 11. By the way, I have the RSV here for some reason. I've got a new computer, and I'm struggling with it, so bear with me. I've got the RSV. Uh, I usually use the NASV. It says this. It says, So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel... And go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Stop there. Notice this greeting in David's name. So they're going to bear the authority of David. This is in the same sense that in the New Testament, Jesus sends his apostles out again, his disciples, and if you reject them, you're rejecting Christ himself. If you receive their words, you're receiving Christ. Right? Bob has talked about the term decamai, the idea of welcome. All right, so that's kind of the idea that you have going on here. Is David going to be mistreated, or are they going to receive his men? Verse six it says, "And thus you shall you shall salute him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all of all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that we were in Carmel. Ask your young men." And they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Pray, give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Okay, now, notice here in verse 9, the reaction. It says, when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal, the fool, right? In the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from 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 where I do not know? I'm sorry, from where I do not know. So 
That's the end of the the quote that I have in my notes here, verse 11. He's not going to give anything. He's going to be stingy. Who is this David? Now, why is that so egregious? Because David was known. David had great repute. David had a tremendous following in Israel. In fact, Abigail, turn your Bibles just ahead to 1 Samuel 25, verse 28. Notice what Abigail, and this is what Laverne was saying, she ends up interceding on behalf of Nabal. But notice the evidence here that, yes, David was well known. Abigail said, please forgive the trespasses of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Isn't it interesting in 1 Samuel 25, 28, Abigail here is interceding and she calls David her Lord. And she knows, notice she says, certainly, she says, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. That was the promise that was given to David. That was a promise that was given to him. She knew of his renown. So here's the point. Nabal is a kinsman to David. David, who was going to be the future king of Israel, God's anointed, is protecting Nabal, and yet he gets nothing in return. Nabal is only harsh, the opposite of Cassette. He's not gracious in any way. He's not merciful in any way. But Abigail is. Abigail intercedes, and because of her moral character... She shows great wisdom, the wisdom that Nabal never does. And so my whole point in this is that in the Bible, wisdom isn't just merely connected to knowledge. It's connected to moral character. The moral character of a woman who was the opposite of her husband, she wasn't harsh, she was kind, she was an intercessor. But Nabal, who literally means fool demonstrates that foolishness in the Bible is the opposite of God, not gracious, not a person who cares about others. Think about the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourself. Who demonstrated that, Abigail or Nabal? And so, brothers and sisters, the question for you in your daily life is how do you act? Are you more like Nabal or are you more like Abigail? There was times in my own life, to my own, my own shame, I've been a Nabal, foolish, uh, arrogant, mean-spirited, not living up to the name that I've been called by, the Lord Jesus. And there's times that I've had to repent of that to say, hey, I've got to act in a way that's keep, in keeping with the great high calling that I have. And maybe that's true of you. Maybe some here today say, you know what, I've been harsh with people, needlessly so. Do you remember in James 1.20, it says that the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God? One day, Bob and I were doing a radio program together, a podcast, and that struck me to the core because I was so angered by some of the people I had been ministering to because they kept getting into things that um, were just heresy. i kind of given up on them. i just about ready to write them off. And I wasn't showing any grace anymore to them. And so when Bob had said that to me, I was cut to the heart to say, hey, you know what, I have to be gracious still to be long-suffering. Perhaps God will grant them repentance as we see in Second Timothy. So something to consider. If you and I are going to be those who are wise, we're going to be gracious. We're going to be those who are dedicated 
to truth in our lives. Okay, anyone want to talk about that or any more concepts? Yes, Laverne. Well, yeah, we need, we, we're going to have to splurge and get two. Thank you, Carly, for doing this for us. Yeah, exactly. That's good. Yeah, thank you. It just occurred to me, the question that Brian made about names. Yeah. In heaven, we're going to get a new name. And that, I wish I knew what that was so I could live up to it now. But <laughs> well said. Yeah, let's live up to it now, right? Amen, Laverne. Thank you. Yeah, well said. Well, we'll continue onward unless anyone else has something to say or to add. Uh, yeah, Brian, go ahead. <clears throat> Before you confessed, I was thinking to myself that I'm like that uh, a lot of the time. And I think that's true for anybody uh, until we're uh, uh, glorified. Yeah, certainly we're going to fall short this side of glory. The the ideal is that we would live out, as uh, Laverne said, live up to our name here and now. In fact, um, Adam had brought up the third commandment, we shall not bear the Lord's name in vain. And oftentimes, I think in our Christian culture, that's been assumed just to be using God's name as a cuss word, which certainly is a problem. But I think the idea of bearing the Lord's name in vain, first and foremost, has to do with the Israelites carrying or bearing his name, lifting it up, and living in such a way that they bring disrepute upon the name of Yahweh. And uh, one of the places that you see that is in Daniel's prayer, in Daniel chapter 9, where he has to acknowledge that Israel, even though they carried the Lord's name, they lived in such a way that they brought disrespect and disrepute upon his name. And remember, he says, for your sake, for your people, and for your holy city, which is called by your name, he asked the Lord to intervene. So anyway, bearing the Lord's name in vain means that we take his name, we, we say, I'm a Christian, but we don't live lives of cassette and lives of truth. Yes, Judy. I even hate to say this, but while I was driving, and I get behind the wheel, and I become a maniac. (laughs) I mean, it's just horrible. And I just, like this, and what were you thinking? And God called me, and he said, what are you doing? Basically, you know, your attitude. You're a Christian woman, really. I would never know what you better Get your life in order. Hmm. And I think that when I'm really slipping down the road, you know, when I'm really getting off into something I shouldn't be like that, yeah. he really starts going, bam, bam, look at that, bam, look at that. And he really lets me know. And yeah. I really, all I did was repent <laughs> for the rest of the way after I did this and that and this and that. Right, right, right. It was right. awful. Yeah, it's conviction, isn't it? Yeah, yeah the same thing happened to me the, the other week. I came into a contact with a, a co-worker, and he was really out of line, negative. And I reacted negatively to him. Sure. And I walked away from that thinking, wait a minute, this dude's not saved, you know, but I am, and I'm not supposed to act this way. And yeah. in the same way, I felt so convicted, like, wow. I mean, you know, what did you say, something about wisdom? You, you had a line in there. It said, uh, wisdom is... Connected to moral character. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man, that's yeah. you know, that's Amen. what we need to that's what we need to think about and how we react with people and, and yes. we can't we can't act like they do. We need to love on our enemies, even if we want to smack them in the face. I mean we gotta love them instead. Well said. No, thank you, Rich, and thank you, Judy, for sharing that. Um, th- there's the old joke, the last part of you sanctified is your right foot. Yeah. 
you know, you're <laughs> uh, driving. Um, and I'm sorry, I'll come right to you. I, you know, what's interesting is you're both saying that. I thank you for sharing those things. And we all, we all have those times in our lives where we don't live up. I, think about this idea of, let me just back up, grace and truth. And what's interesting is one theologian put it this way. He said, think of a river. And he goes, with the river is this grace, this graciousness that we have in our lives. But if all we are is gracious and there's no truth, without the, the truth is like the banks of the river. And without the banks, you have just a destructive flood. And so there's times where we have to be truthful and well, we should be truthful all the time, but I'm saying there's times where we have to stand for the truth where it may be heated, where um, my son is flying an airplane. I was flying with him the other day. I'm still a flight instructor. And if I have to yell at him to kick the rudder, otherwise we're going to roll the airplane as we're landing sideways, um, the, the truth has to be there, right? Now, I can be gracious about it, but the point is the truth has to be there because life is at stake. Rich, I'm just saying that is sometimes we have to put our foot down to say, no, there's only one way to salvation. Jesus said, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, but we can do it lovingly. We can do it graciously. Let the gospel be the offense, not us. That's always the key. Let the gospel be the offense, not me. That's the idea. And so, hey, I fall in short, and I appreciate you both sharing those things because we've all been convicted. And you know what's beautiful about those things? is when you're convicted, see, the unregenerate don't care. But you do because the Spirit's within you. That's the difference. That's how sanctification works and what it looks like. Amen. Yeah, Brian. I think the real lesson here is Christians shouldn't put fish on the back of their vehicles. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Very good. That's very good, Brian. Yeah, I'm sorry. I saw another hand up somewhere. Anybody else? Okay, maybe I, I'm seeing things. But, yeah, very good. Thank you for those comments. Excellent. Let me turn to the next slide here. We're to trust in God, not self. And we see that here in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. The writer here says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. First of all, notice this idea of trusting in the Lord. The idea of trusting, this is synonymous with the idea of what you and I would say faith. Faith is synonymous with trusting, trusting in Him, who He is, what He's done. This is the idea of true wisdom. This is where wisdom comes from. And notice He says, with all your heart. The heart here is not just simply the seat of emotions. Oftentimes we'll use that as Americans, we'll use the heart as simply the faculty of emotions. But here, the heart is probably the center of the thought life, the will, the intellect. Yes, the emotions are there as well, but it's the center of our thought life. And again, this is why Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 7, that it's from the heart that our sins come. It's not that which is on the outside that makes us sinners, but that which is on the inside. Jesus talks about that in Mark chapter 7. So the heart is certainly the center of our thought life. Now, notice in this box where he says, do not lean. The idea of sha'an here in Hebrew is the idea of literally physically leaning, but here it's used metaphorically. We're metaphorically, think about it, we're not to lean on our own understanding. And when he talks about our own understanding, the idea is to rely on our own ability. 
This would be understanding apart from the Word of God. This would be knowledge that is deficient because it comes merely from humanity. It comes from us. Uh, Bob, some years ago, he was, I think you were in Acts 7 when you were teaching, and it struck me, he said, we're not right just because we're us. We're right as if, if our ideas, our concepts, and our doctrines correspond to the Scriptures. So because we're not right just because we're us, there should be humility, not because we can't know the truth. Remember first. John 5.13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have everlasting life. You, you can be confident in that knowledge of the Lord, but when it comes to ourselves, when we're stepping out away from the word of the Lord and we're walking out on our own, there should be a little humility because I'm not right just because I'm Eric Dalma or whoever you are in here, but you're right if what you do and what you say corresponds to the scriptures so we're not to lean on our own understanding now notice here in verse 6 he says in all your ways acknowledge him notice the term ways there it's the the term direct it's the same term for road and obviously here it's just it has to do with all of the affairs of life all of the affairs in your life acknowledge him uh, yes i'm sorry eric's back there with his hand up I'm sorry, Car- Carly. You're going to get a workout today. Sorry about that. Thank you for doing this for us. Yeah, we'll have to get more mics around. One second. Uh, I don't know if this is correct, but that word acknowledge there, when I looked it up in Hebrew, it's, it was like kind of the word know. Or, yeah. So to me, that, that the rendering is in English is kind of confusing because it seems to be saying know his ways, like figure out God's ways. And yeah. so it's, I think it's actually better rendered learn his ways because it's like don't figure out your ways, but learn God's ways. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Right. Yeah, um, I don't have the Hebrew in front. Is, maybe Adam has, is it Yadah to know? Oh, okay. Acknowledge. Okay, very good, yeah. The, the idea is that in our ways, in the, the way that we live, we're to look to him, right? Think about this. Think about this passage, um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Then in verse 10 it says, for we are created, our, I'm sorry, for... We are created in him for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, I'm sorry, if it says, for yeah, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them, the things that he's exactly prepared in advance for us to do. So, think about God has prepared in advance all the things that we should do. We should walk them out. And that's the idea here. We acknowledge him by faith. We trust in him. And he's the one who irons out our, our ways, right? Yeah, Eric. I'm sorry, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared before and that we should walk in them. That's how it goes, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if this is a stretch either, but you know the word chesed, chesed. Yeah. You know, the, the loving kindness. Yeah, loving kindness, uh, yes. I had taken some classes from a guy, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew expert, but I had taken some classes and 
I was taught that the one of the aspects of chesed is God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Yeah. And so we can't, in other words, we, we need God. When we look at this, God will make our paths straight. So yeah. we lean on the Lord and we yes. lean on the word of God. We yeah. do not lean on our own understanding because a lot of times that's flawed. And so I think that there is a, a like a really an application of that. Chesed, yes. the concept of chesed, God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Right. And right. Uh, same thing with that Ephesians uh, citation that you gave too. Yeah. Let me, let me try to give an illustration. So because we trust in God and his word, it means that when I go to do my taxes, I live that out differently than the world does. I don't cheat, maybe the world does. And so when I'm pulled over by the police officer because my foot isn't yet sanctified, hopefully maybe we don't do that, but my point is I'm gracious to him. We, we act differently. Our road, the paths that we walk are differently. And that's why it's so interesting when he says make your path straight. The opposite of that is the crooked path, which is not only morally stained, one that leads not to the road of salvation. Remember in the book of Proverbs, there's two ways. The way of the fool and the way of the wise. Right? right. Two ways. Yep. And so if you're going down the way of the fool, implied it's a crooked path. It's foiled because it leads to perdition, and it's foiled because it leads to folly here and now. It leads to troubles and trials um, and, and so forth. So, well said, Eric. I think yeah, you're exactly We rely on God, really. For, to, that's how, when they say, be holy for I am holy. We yes. can't do that on our own. We, we can't, can't even, We can't even come to faith on our own. Yes. So that's God's loving kindness. Well said. You know, by the way, it's a great segue. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 soon, where we're t- um, the Mount of Beatitudes. And I remember Adam said something very profound to me some years ago. Adam, do you remember saying this to me? When it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. I remember Adam saying to me, he says, you know, on the one hand, we can't do that. Be holy as I am holy. I can't do that. But on the other hand, we will do that. And so the point is, we can't do that in of ourselves. It's only by the power of God, by the Spirit indwelt within us. But at the same time, because we have the Spirit, we will do those things. We will be merciful. We will be those who are gracious to others. So, yeah, it's, 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 we'll be talking about that in, in Matthew 5. So, yeah, yeah amen. Sometimes um, there's a tendency to reduce the Sermon on the Mount either to be an illustration of here's, here's what you can't do as a sinner. Right. Therefore, you need justification, which is true but deny sort of the ethical implications of that, how we're to walk out and live our lives as the disciples of Jesus. But both things are true. Amen. Uh, that in and of ourselves, uh, we can't do these things. We need the new covenant. Uh, we need the spirit of Christ uh, poured upon us. Uh, we need to be have our sins forgiven. He lives the perfect righteous life uh, that we, we couldn't. Uh, and he bears our sins, our trespasses, our guilt. Uh, that we couldn't bear, but then he transforms us by his spirit to actually be his disciples and walk in his ways. And we're to now live in this life with a new mindset yeah. that this we're new creations in Christ. And I was going to say, it helps to understand passages like this. Yeah. These are to be read together, uh, the Proverbs, uh, each line. Uh, so you don't want to just isolate one. Uh, because you'll you'll confuse yourself then. And so read them together where you have a positive exhortation. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Yes. And then a negative. Here's what you don't do. Right. Do not lean on your understanding. So it's the positive, contrast. the negative, do this, don't do this. Yes. In all your ways, acknowledge him, kind of reiterates it, and he will make your path straight. Amen. And so it's about trusting and acknowledging the Lord, not leaning on your understanding, but his. That's right. There's a contrast. Amen. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Thank you so much. Um, anyone else? I know we've just got a few minutes left here. But I'll try to finish this up. Let me get to verses 7 through 8. Oh, you know what? Before I do that, I want to talk about this idea of acknowledging the wisdom of the Lord. I want to talk about something Bob's been teaching us in 1 Corinthians. Remember in 1 Corinthians one twenty-one, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Notice this in red, the world through its wisdom. The wisdom of the world is that which is opposed to the things of God and salvation, the gospel. That would be synonymous with leaning on your own understanding. That is the understanding that's purely human, devoid from the revelation of God. Okay, so the wisdom of the world, they look at the cross and the message of the gospel as foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the very wisdom and it's the very power of God. We know that. Okay, so we're to live that out. That's the idea that the world... We'll never see God's wisdom and his way of salvation the way those who have been regenerated by the Spirit. I think we'll come to this in Proverbs 3.34. It said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Those who are humble and say, I acknowledge that he is the way, it's his truth, it's his word, I have to live his way, and we humble ourselves, we're going to be the one who God is gracious too. Now let's finish this up about fearing God. Proverbs 3, 7 through 8. The writer of Proverbs says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Notice this idea of not being wise in our own eyes. Again, relying upon our own, in our own human nature, our wisdom apart from that which God has revealed. The term there for wise is kakam, the idea of being learned, wise, or skilled in our own eyes, but not objectively here, according to God's word. To be wise in your own eyes may be impressive to you, but it's obviously not to God. There's so many times in my own life I've been wise in my own eyes, but it wasn't something that was going to be impressive to God. It was acting in ways that were not in keeping with what he wants. Remember, this idea of fearing the Lord, fearing God, it implies there is that there is a trust. There is a reverence, this idea of fear. Why? Because he's the one who judges on the last day. I think I have this. Do I have it? Yep, I got Matthew ten 28. I'll put that up in a moment. Because Jesus, remember in Matthew ten twenty, he says, who do you really fear? Do you fear man or do you fear God? Who are you going to answer to on the last day? If all you and I are is so much fodder in the ground after we die, that's what many atheists believe. Well, then they don't fear God. Why? Because they believe that this is all there is. Remember, uh, who was that famous, uh, what was his name? Carl Sagan's. Carl Sagan's, the astronomer, would say, This is my Carl Sagan's impersonation. You get this free today. The universe is all there ever was, all there ever is, 
but all the river will be. Remember that? He would say that all the time. That's not fearing God. He doesn't think he's ever going to answer to him. But because you believe, you fear him. There really is an element of fear. Yes, it's reverence. It's certainly that. But there's an element of fear because I know I'm going to answer to the Holy One of Israel. And so remember back in Proverbs 1-7, we saw this where it said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Again, two ways in Proverbs, the way of the fool, going to destruction, devoid of God's word, leaning on their own understanding, and the way of the wise. The one who will acquiesce to the scriptures, the one who says, I want to live according to his word. Notice this other phrase where it says, um, turn away from evil. The, the, uh, the term, I think, is shuv here. The idea of turning away from evil is the idea of repentance. The idea that we would turn from idolatry, turn from evil, turn from unbelief, and turn to God in his terms, which is faith alone, right, in Christ alone. It's going to be refreshment and healing to your bones. Do you know that people who live in sin, sometimes their conscience bothers them? It brings about problems in their physical well-being. Now, it is true, according to 1 Timothy 4, 2, people can have a seared conscience, a conscience that's so devoid of truth that no longer functions correctly. Remember, our conscience is not a foolproof guide. There are people who are so distorted in their worldview that they can do great evil and their conscience doesn't prick them at all. But for many people, their conscience does. And so the idea here is that if you and I would live lives that are pleasing to God, you and I are going to be those who are not tormented but have a conscience that is clear. It is healing to us. Again, who do we fear? I'll just leave you with this. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, that's God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell you will always end up living for and trying to please the one you fear. If you fear man, you'll try to live for man and you'll live a sinful life. But if you fear God, you'll want to please him and you'll live a godly life. That always goes back to who you believe and who you fear. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for wisdom that comes from your word. I pray, Lord, that in the weeks and months ahead, that we would be people who would acquiesce to your truth and your scripture and that we would live accordingly, that we would be those who do bear your name appropriately, that we would live lives of wisdom, leaning not on our own understanding, but acknowledging you in all of our ways. We pray, Heavenly Father, for this wisdom that it would sustain us in difficult days, that you would help enable us to persevere until that day you come for us. I also pray for Bob in the sermon today, that we would have ears to hear, and they'd also be not just hearers of the word, but doers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.